You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in order to get the best view, you've got to get to the highest point, right? If you're hiking a beautiful ridge, you're you're looking for the vista, that, that high place where you can see everything else. From there, you can take it all in and see how it all sort of fits together. Or for instance, when Aladdin wants to show Jasmine a whole new world, a fantastic point of view, they go way up there where it's crystal clear, and then a whole new world appears, right? This, this, amen, this is where the Apostle Paul intends to take the church in this next portion of Colossians, to the very highest point. Why? Because without this high view of Jesus Christ, you will not be able to see God. Without this high view of Christ, you won't be able to see the world. And shockingly, without this high view of Christ, you won't even be able to see yourself clearly. Because it's through Jesus that we see it all coming together. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But not only is this high point important for taking in all of the beauty, it's also the place that you've got to get to when you're lost, above the tree line, above the sort of disorienting landscape. I'm pretty good with directions. I'll be honest about that. I can typically find my bearings pretty easily. But I remember visiting New York uh, once, and it felt like I was totally turned around. We would come out of like a subway station, and I, we were in a totally unfamiliar place. And if you've ever been to New York City, the, the buildings are so tall and so packed together that it can be like any time of the day and all you see is just a little sliver of the sky, no sun. You have no idea where you are. It can become so disorienting. I, and I couldn't make, you know, find my bearings. I couldn't figure out where we were until we actually visited a relative of a relative's fancy like law office in this high-rise building way, way up top. And from that high floor, we got the panoramic view. Oh, there's like New Jersey and like there's the Statue of Liberty and and there's 
uh, Central Park over here and all the landscape from the highest view. Paul is taking the church in Colossae straight to the top, to the pinnacle view of Jesus because the church was at risk of getting lost in their journey. A little bit of history here. In the first century, Christianity faced a lot of opposition. We probably know that. But one of the fiercest threats to the faith actually didn't come from outside of the church. One of the fiercest threats to the Christian faith then, and I think now, comes from within the church. At the time, there were these pseudo-Christian teachings that mixed elements of Christianity and Judaism and Greek philosophy and then other sort of local temple practices wherever you found yourself. And some people, and we don't know a lot about this, but some people called this the deep knowledge, the secret knowledge. It was for the spiritual elites, the few special enlightened ones that would essentially say, come here, come here, let me tell you a little secret. Kind of like your uh, multi-level marketing friend who's like, I'm not telling everyone about this. I'm just telling you about this. Let me tell you about this opportunity here. Yes, Jesus, absolutely important. Faith and baptism, for sure. That's how you, 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 know, you start the, the whole thing. It's the beginning steps. But if you really, again, I'm not telling everyone about this, but if you really want to progress in your spiritual journey, if you really want to, to reach the, the heights of spiritual advancement, then listen. You've got to incorporate these additional spiritual regimens. So add these religious regulations, avoid these foods, celebrate these certain special high holidays, experience these like special visions, and on and on and on. So the formula was this. Jesus is how you are saved. Christianity 101, duh. But Jesus plus fill in the blank is how you really progress. That's where you get somewhere. There's a portion of a book that I have shared a lot about over the years from C.S. Lewis's fictional book, The Screwtape Letters. If you have not read it by now, you need to read it. And the, the premise of the book is pretty interesting. It's one demon uh, teaching another demon how to come against the Christian in their faith, how to undermine our faith. And the one demon writes to the other demon, the real trouble about the life your patient is living is that it's merely Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind that I call Christianity and, you know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and fill in the blank. So that was like somewhere around 75 years ago. So today we could add a number of things to that list, like Christianity and political action. Christianity and social justice. Christianity and cultural identity. Christianity and financial peace. Christianity and individual expression. Christianity and nationalism. You catch my drift? But here's the message of the Colossians. That progress in our Christianity will always be and will only be a result of a return back to Jesus alone. And while progress in faith is going to result in a number of significant actions, so don't hear me wrong, it will result in significant actions, but they are always going to be the result of a life centered on Jesus as ultimate, or as we will sing later today, in Christ alone. So Paul's goal here is pretty simple and clear. He wants us 
to see and to believe in the preeminence of Christ. Turn to your neighbor and say, Christ is preeminent. Say it like you mean it, please. All these descriptions of Jesus are just different ways of describing him as first, ultimate, above all, unmatched, goat, right? Greatest of all time. Nothing rivals his greatness or his power. Nothing can be placed on the same level as Jesus. You cannot ever add to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And the moment that you try to add to Jesus, we diminish our experience of him entirely. The stakes are high. Jesus plus anything decreases our experience of him. As it's been said before, Christ is either Lord of all or he's nothing at all, but he will not share that position. So if you're taking notes, here's where we're going to begin today. We're going to begin with Christ and the cosmos. Now, I originally titled this point Christ and Creation, which is very accurate, but I think that we have a very limited view when we think creation, because we typically think of creation as the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the animals, the people, etc. But I broadened this to cosmos because Paul does, and he includes dimensions of our existence and human existence and universe existence that we probably don't think of when we think about Jesus, Yes, Jesus is Lord over the seen, created, observable world, but he's also the cosmic king over the vast universe, seen and unseen, the earthly, tangible things that are around us, but also, we're told here, heavenly spiritual realms and dominions. Jesus is Lord of those too. So look at me in verse 15. Let's just make our way through this passage. He, speaking of who? Okay, that's going to be important because we're going to hear he often. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So Paul begins by showing us that Jesus is the full representation and the truest revelation of who God is and how God works in heaven and throughout human history. And while we as humans were intended to be image bearers of God, to represent God in the world, Jesus alone is the only true and perfect image of God because he is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Gospel of John begins very similarly saying, no one has ever seen God but Jesus now makes him known. Jesus makes him visible. Or Jesus himself in John 14 says this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You wanna see God? Look at me. All of our questions about God are once and for all finally answered in his son, Jesus Christ. Continuing on, verse 15. The firstborn of all creation. Now that's gonna be a challenging passage that has been throughout Christian history. What this does not mean is that Jesus was created. Pay attention here. Paul did not say Jesus is a creation. That is actually a heresy and a historically condemned idea. This separates true Christian faith from fringe Christian ideologies and pseudo-Christian beliefs. Jesus is not a created being. Can I get an amen? That has to be really clear. You have to know that. Jesus is not created. 
In fact, one of our early Christian documents, the Nicene Creed, tells us this. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not what? Not made. Of the same essence of the Father. Okay, so if that's not what it means, what does it mean then that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? Well, the word firstborn in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean birth order. Firstborn actually has to do with a status and a rank. For instance, King David. You know the story of King David. The prophet came to Jesse's home and he came to anoint the king. And Jesse brings out all of his sons from oldest to youngest. And the prophet's like, no, not you. You, no, 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 no. Do you have any other sons here that we're missing? And Jesse says, well, we got David, the runt. He's out in the field, but surely he can't be him. And the prophet says, let's bring him out. That same David who was anointed king is referred to in Psalm 89 as the firstborn. So in the ancient world, this title meant a legal status of someone that would inherit all of the power, all of the wealth, all of the position Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He inherits all of the power, all of the wealth, all of the position. You with me? Let's keep going. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, here's where it gets cosmic, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, what things? All things were created. I'm going to keep some interaction here. All things were created through him and for him. So if there was any doubt about it, what we're told here is that all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, in heaven and in earth. Jesus is Lord over all, over what is known, over the seen world, but also powers like unforeseen forces, spiritual strongholds, systems, etc. In Philippians, we're told that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and where? Under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means the righteous and the condemned. That means angels and demons. That means the living and the dead. And everyone between will bow before Jesus and confess, you are Lord of all. And so let's get practical here. If all things were created by, through, and for Jesus, if we owe our existence to him, then we owe our whole lives to him. If he is the reason for everything and he is over everything, then surely the logical conclusion is that Jesus deserves our everything. Abraham Kuyper put it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, 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 mine. So it's one thing to confess Jesus is Lord over all. We probably have sung it today. Jesus is Lord of all, you know, we say it. It's an entirely different thing to live as if this is actually true, that Jesus has claim over every square inch of our entire human experience. So some questions to consider this morning. What are those areas in your life 
that you have deceived yourself into thinking are yours. Your relationships, your sexuality, money, your time, your dreams, your goals, your leisure. Where do you need to apply this truth today? What have you tried to keep off limits from God? Carrying on, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So there's a sociologist named Christian Smith who studied the religious landscape of America in the 21st century, and what he found was that the dominant understanding of God, so the most prevalent understanding of God in 21st century America, especially among young people, is what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll say that again. Moralistic therapeutic deism, and it can be boiled down to essentially these key tenets. Number one, there is a God who created the world but now remains distant from people's lives. He spun it all into motion and he said, deuces, I'm out, see you in a thousand years. Number two, people are supposed to be good to each other. Number three, the universal goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God allows good people to go to heaven. Now, if that sums up your understanding of Christianity, you've got a problem. And he goes on to say this, most of the time, the God of this faith, and see the specific uh, lowercase g there, of this faith, because it's a false God, keeps a safe distance. This God of moralistic therapeutic deism keeps a pretty safe distance from us. But I want you to think about it. This is the major, if he is right, if his data is right and his research is correct, this is the major belief in America, especially among young people. And this is the false belief reality that we are explicitly called to actively refute and say that is not our God. That is not the God that we worship because the scriptures show us a far more empowering and hopeful truth that all things are held together in Jesus. He is not just our creator, he is our forever sustainer and our whole existence is kept intact through his faithful presence. You feel like your life's falling apart today? In whom all things are held together. We are dependent upon him for everything, breath, life, love, goodness, beauty, salvation, eternity. The same cosmic king who keeps galaxies in motion is right now ministering his grace to us in this very moment to keep us remaining in the love of God, to sustain our very lives. God is with us. And this God refuses to keep a safe distance. Number two, Christ and the church. Let's look at verse 18, and we're making our way through this passage. And he is the head of the body, the what? The church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So this is really interesting. Interesting. The place where Jesus chooses to display 
his preeminence, and I can guarantee you you're not using that word this week, his preeminence is through the church. This is where, and not like theoretically, I mean like flesh and blood, uncomfortable pew, and person singing next to us kind of church. This is where he highlights his majesty before time and split and space and flexes his muscles before all of the demonic forces in spiritual realms. This is where Jesus says, I'm king. Strange place to do it, huh? In Ephesians 3, Paul says this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That word manifold can also be translated multicolored or multifaceted display of God's wisdom and creativity. So the church is Jesus's greatest work. And the church is the clearest picture of his greatness. Half dome, beautiful. Sunsets on the beach, come on. We all want to be there. Galaxies in motion. I saw how you guys reacted to that most recent picture of, you know, newly discovered galaxies and you were like reposting it like, oh my gosh, my mind blown and oh my gosh. Art, music, beauty, as wonderful as all of those things are, they all pale in comparison to what Jesus has formed in the church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? And while many things may, you know, display the work of God, the church alone is called the body of the risen Christ. So near and so dear to his heart that he identifies us, his redeemed people, as his flesh and blood on earth. And when I say us, and I'm going to keep pressing this point, not us individually. Us individually is what Paul uh, calls in 1 Corinthians 12, severed limbs. That's not beautiful. I used to have someone in our community group that was a nurse that sent us a picture of a severed foot. I will never forget this. I cannot get this out of my brain. That is not beautiful. That is not beautiful. So Paul's not talking about individual members of the body. He's talking about us collectively together as the church. Why the church? It was probably illegal to send that picture, huh? Okay. Well, I'm not going to tell you who did it. Um, So why the church? Because the church is where the resurrection power of God has been opened. The firstborn of the dead. The sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the animals, the people in general, yes, they display Jesus' creative power. Please do not hear me wrong. But the church alone displays recreative power, resurrection power. Not just as another expression of humanity, not just some new thing, but an entirely new humanity. J.B. Phillips put it this way. The Christian faith took root and flourished in an atmosphere almost entirely pagan, where cruelty and sexual immorality were taken for granted, where slavery and inferiority of women were almost universal, while superstition and rival religions with all kinds of bogus claims existed on every hand. And with this pagan chaos, the early Christians, by the power of God within them, lived lives as sons of God, demonstrating purity, and honesty, patience, and genuine love. 
These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become, through Christ, literally sons of God. They were pioneers, and here's that word, of a new humanity, founders of a new kingdom, and they still speak to us across the centuries. And listen to this. Perhaps if we believed what they believed, we might achieve what they achieved. Paul goes on, verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Dwelling, that's temple language. Think about in the Old Testament as God would dwell with his people in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, or later in the temple. But even those were just supposed to be hints Even like King Solomon recognized, like even the greatest heavens can't contain the presence of God, let alone this building we built with human hands. It was never the fullness of God dwelling. It was just partially God dwelling with his people until Christ, until Jesus. Jesus, in in the fullness and the the completeness and the vastness of God, makes their home in heaven and on earth in this Jesus. And so the application for us, the church, is this, is that if you have Jesus through faith, if you are hidden in Christ through faith, then you have infinitely more than you could ever imagine in him. We simply cannot improve upon the fullness of God that is now and always available to us in Jesus, a fullness that is now being poured or lavished upon us through the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are rich in him. Finally, Christ and the cross. Verse 20 and 22, through 22. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here's what Paul does. Paul shoots us to the highest levels and this highest view of Jesus Christ. And then he brings us back down to earth and in terms and I don't have time to get into the weeds here but these would have been a completely offensive to those who have been wrapped up in the Gnostic heresy he uses super offensive words like flesh blood mind deeds body cross and he makes it so personal and he says and you from the cosmic to us by the way um This passage here is answering some of the big questions that humans have been asking since before time. What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What's wrong with this world? How can it be ever made right again? And the answer is here. That there's a rift between heaven and earth, or more specifically, between creator and his creation. Sin which is the demand for autonomy, sin, which is a rebellion and a rejection of God, has produced hostility and separation. We are not what we should be, and the world is not what it should be. We can all agree upon this. The peace that we were intended to experience between us and God, the peace that we were intended to experience with our world and with each other has been shattered. Like Humpty Dumpty, we had a great fall. And we're broken. And 
It's a separation that no amount of humanitarian work or willpower or collective good or even personal religious devotion could ever bring back together again. All the king's horses and all the king's men could never bring Humpty together again. It's, it's shattered. And it's an expanse that only Jesus can heal, Paul says. And so, and so instead of... of you know, offering us this way that we can climb back to the heights that we were made for, like many other religions, do this, do this, incorporate these virtues, and maybe, cross your fingers, you'll make it. Instead of giving us spiritual steps to somehow ascend back to God as if that were possible, the gospel offers us something tremendously different. The gospel offers us a Jesus Christ, flesh and blood, fully God and fully human, who descended to us. This same cosmic king became the crucified and risen savior. In fact, the cross, it just wasn't some like detour in his process of being lifted up and and made ultimate again. The cross is the throne from which Jesus established his rule and reign. Heaven and earth, creation and creator reconciled again as his flesh was torn in two. The only way to get this cosmic view of King Jesus is to look to the cross. You miss the cross, you miss it all. And so what that means for us is to submit to Jesus' authority is to surrender to his sacrificial love. To come under the leadership of Jesus so that every square inch is his means to come under the healing reign of Jesus. When we repent of our sin, when we renounce our autonomy, when we we simply say, I am not Lord over my life, we become what we could never become on our own. In fact, we're told here, we become, and listen to these words, these are intentional, holy, blameless, faultless, or above reproach. In a world where kings and queens are still presented and paraded, we've seen enough of that in the news over the last week, the gospel tells us that this king presents us. It's not a parade to make much of him per se, it's a parade to promote us. Everything he does, everything he did and continues to do is to promote and lift us up. The cross, the empty tomb, was so that we could be presented faultless, blameless, holy before the throne of God so that we could be exalted with him. And so let me conclude by saying this. Everything that I've just mentioned is ours. Everything without exception is ours if. And this is a big if. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Reality, we are going to refuse to move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am making a commitment to you now and always to refuse to move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I hope you make that commitment as well. You've got to refuse to drift in the faith Pressing in is intentional. Drifting, it's easy. Refuse to drift. 
And you've got to stand fast and steady on the foundation of Jesus alone. Christ alone, our salvation now and forever. Can I get an amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for...